Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. My sermon this morning is entitled, Like Magic. Peace Corps volunteers were sent to a rural village in Bangladesh suffering from warfare and overpopulation and famine. They taught farming methods, ensured safe water, they dug irrigation grids against dry seasons, and the female corpsman taught the young women basic birth control. And this was new to them, so the uh, young corpsman composed a little song about how to manage their fertility cycles. The song would remind them what to do, or as the case might be, what not to do and when, you know. But it was the song would teach them what to do. And the young corpsman returned after 10 years. This is a true story. Returned 10 years later and was shocked to see even more children under the age of 10. And she asked the mothers why they had continued to birth so many children. And they answered, we don't know. Every time we made love to our husbands, we sang your song. (laughs) But it didn't keep us from getting pregnant. Do you have a more powerful song? Everybody believes in cause and effect of some kind, but it isn't always clear what's the cause to which effect. These Bangladeshi mothers knew that sex causes babies, but they could not imagine that they could somehow manage their own monthly fertility cycles. However, their native culture did believe in the power of magical songs, so they figured it was the song itself, not its lessons, that would guard them from pregnancy. Of course, oops. The right effect, wrong cause. Good thing that we're not superstitious like that, right? 2005, a retired surgeon was diagnosed with myeloma. His oncologist initiated a bone marrow transplant healthy marrow was harvested, his remaining marrow was destroyed. And he was sternly warned he had no, zero, nada, immunity against infection and must quarantine himself for two full weeks until healthy marrow would be injected back into his bones. Did he understand? Yes, he said, he understood. Two days later, he went to his wife's antique mall, and he spent three hours hanging up and beating out the rugs 
24 hours later, my friend was dead. Now, why would a brilliant doctor ignore medical advice and so flagrantly expose himself to every kind of dirt and bacteria known to man? Well, it's a kind of arrogance that is common among healthcare professionals. Knowledge is power. I'll tell you, the, the place that has the most people in the little smoking section outside the business, because they can't smoke in the buildings now, down in North Carolina, so, so they have these smoking sections outside the buildings, the workplaces, and the workplace that has the most people outside smoking, do you know where it is? It's the hospital next door to me. My friend would have told patients that it was doing the doctor's advice that leads to the best effect. But when it came to his own health, he presumed it was all in the knowing. If I intellectually know and understand the dangers, they have no power over me. No, it's not logical. It's emotional thinking. And that crosses over from science to magic, just like the Bangladeshi mothers. Well, none of us are foolish like that, right? I hear a few chuckles there. A few people know. <laughs> yes, we're not foolish like that. Uh, there, I saw an interview. Young man at a crowded bar was asked why he was not wearing a mask against the coronavirus. And he shook his head. Well, nobody's going to take away my personal liberties. And the reporter then wondered, well, what, what are you doing to protect yourself and others from the virus? And he responded, oh, oh, I'm being very careful. And they said, well, what are you doing? When you say you're being very careful, what are you doing to be careful? What precautions are you actually taking? He could not list a single actual precaution he was taking. He was relying on the power of wishful thinking. If he doesn't want to get sick, he can't get sick, right? Well, that is magical thinking. That is magic. When most folks, one, when most folks think about magic, they picture witches with pointy hats and devils with horns lurking in the shadows, the evil spells and smoking cauldrons, uh, consulting the dead and demon possession and blasphemous pacts with the devil and all that kind of thing. You can forget all those cartoon characters. Most magic doesn't look like that. The magician thinks of himself as a, as a scientist of sorts. 
His world is filled with forces, spirit forces, invisible forces, gods, angels, demons, nature sprites, just nature powers, whatever. And they're indifferent, might even be hostile, but they can be coaxed or coerced to do the magician's will. With twigs and oils, magnets and crystals, chants and songs, and sheer force of will, he commands and threatens, flatters and cajoles the invisible powers. To him, this is science, like your average chemistry experiment. You know, those ones that always went wrong, right? Well, to him, he figures if he does the spell properly, it should produce the desired result, just like your chemistry experiment, if you mix it together in the amounts you're supposed to at the right temperature and all of that, you're gonna get whatever it is you're trying to get. If he leaves anything out, or if he garbles the inco incantation, well, it won't work. If you don't do the formula right, it won't work. And that's the way a magician thinks. Well, you might ask, looking at that, well, if the spirits, whatever they are, whatever he's calling upon, if those spirits are so wise or all-knowing, so powerful, if they're so indifferent and free, why would they be so manipulated by flattery or empty threats or petty gifts? The magician doesn't think it through because it's not logical. If he does something and the result he wanted happens, well, he'll conclude his manipulation must have been the cause. And, I mean, it couldn't be coincidence, right? And then if it works, quote unquote, if it works once, well, then he'll try it again. And if at some point it doesn't work, well, he'll conclude since it worked before, he must have made a mistake in the spell or he, he needs to add a little something more. Not much different from when you're baking that, that prize pound cake and it falls. Oh, what, did I, what ingredient did I leave out? Was the temperature too hot? Did I, what did I do? The same kind of thinking. It's, it's, a, it's a fake science based on spirit causation and emotional manipulations. It's not a whole lot different from a religious cookbook. Magic is a false religion. There's only one source of legitimate spiritual power. That's the one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who works through the Holy Spirit. All other spiritual forces have received their power from God and employ it either in His service and at His behest or else in opposition to God. So throughout the Bible, throughout church history, all forms of magic whether it's a Ouija boards and tarot cards to seances and Edgar Cayce and spells and all of that, 
can only be the work of demonic spirits who only pretend to be manipulated in order to lure you into a kind of spiritual addiction and so into idolatry and damnation. And yet, what I want to point out today is magic is also a mentality. It's a way of thinking, a way of looking at how spirit and matter interact, and ultimately how God and the world work. It assumes there exists a spiritual cause and effect relationship so that just as what I do and say affects my world, what I do and say can affect God, and God in turn affects the world. Like a willful toddler, if I do and say the right things, Maybe if I give enough good reasons, if I wheedle and whine, if I hold my breath or scream and kick, I can make God do what I want. I make a science of getting my way. Do you hear that? I make a science of getting my way. And as Christian believers, you and I are not entirely immune to magical thinking. It's something we all have to deal with. And just when we think we've figured it out and learned our lessons, the Lord shows us, by the way, a different area of our lives where we're still doing it. Ah. But this is the part of growing up in Christ and sanctification. Two, from the very beginning, from Jesus' ministry of healing and exorcism, from the coming of the Holy Spirit with wind, fire, and speaking in tongues, when the preaching of the gospel with signs and wonders, Christianity has been about power, spiritual power. The, this fact has not been lost on those outside the church who craved spiritual power to work their own brand of miracles, quote-unquote, on their own terms. Consider this exorcistic incantation. It's part of a magic spell by a professional sorcerer around 200 A.D. An excellent spell to cast out demons the prayer to be spoken over the patient's head. Lay before him olive twigs and standing behind him say, greetings God of Abraham, greetings God of Isaac, greetings God of Jacob, Jesus Christ, Holy Ghost, Son of the Father who is under the seven and in the seven. Bring Eau Sabaoth, May your power rest upon so-and-so until you drive away this unclean demon, Satan, who is upon him. I command you, demon, whoever you are, by this God, kabar, this is hard to do, kabar barbatiot, kabar barbatiuth, kabar barbationate, kabar barbafai. Come out, demon, whoever you are, and leave so-and-so now, now, immediately, immediately. Come out, demon, for I bind you 
with inescapable steel chains and deliver you into the black chaos of hell, and so on. Kids, don't try this at home. Despite some Christian, well, a lot of Christian features, this exorcistic incantation is hardly Christian. A pagan magician usurped the sacred names of Christians parroting the prayers and liturgy of the church. He figures knowledge must be power. And if you know the names, you must be able to control their power. And if you speak the names, they must be automatically effective. You know, like magic. In Jesus' own time, he refers to the sons of the Pharisees who are Jewish, uh, traveling Jewish healers and exorcists who go about casting out demons. That's in Luke eleven nineteen. he refers to those. And some of them would try to exploit any kind of spiritual power they hoped they could access. The Gospels mention a certain exorcist in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 40, if you'd like to turn there. John, this is the disciple John, John said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. It's an interesting story. The only reason someone would want to use Jesus' name, especially, you know, still during his earthly ministry, the only reason someone would want to use his name is if they had already seen and knew his power. This passage, it was this passage that convinced the great and very skeptical New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann that the historical Jesus had to have been healing the sick and casting out spirits. He had to have been doing miracles because this is not a story that the early church would invent. They're not going to make this up. First Christians would never have willingly condoned somebody else abusing Jesus' precious name for their own profit. Only Jesus would tell the disciples, let it go. Let it go. Look for allies where you can find them. Somebody who really knows the power of Jesus is only one small step from believing in him. Someone who knows, really knows, has seen and knows the power of Jesus is only one small step from believing in him and following him. So already in Jesus' lifetime, 
Two centuries before that Greek magical spell, someone is trying to use the name and the spiritual power of Jesus in their own way and for their own ends. If you only sing the song, if you only know the medical procedure, if you only will it enough, if you only speak the name, you can harness some invisible power to shape the course of events. It's a universally human misconception when we make a science of religious faith and emotion. Three, it comes as no surprise to find the same kind of thing still happening about 25 years later, this time in Ephesus. Luke tells us in the book of Acts, I invite you to turn to chapter 19, and we'll start reading at verse 11, Acts 19. Acts 19. Okay, we read there, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that when handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then, some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and so overpowered them that they fled from the house naked and wounded. Now, Luke, in this story, Luke illustrates the spiritual power at Paul's disposal. His very kerchiefs and work aprons radiate healing and wholeness. And he does this to set the stage for the story he's fixing to tell, how traveling exorcists are so impressed by the power that Paul's ministry is demonstrating that they want to borrow some of it for their own ends and to use the power of Jesus and Paul's name. Well, this story is told something in the style of a folktale. Seven brothers. That's a typical folktale motif, seven brothers. They are, or maybe we should say they claim to be, sons of a Jewish high priest. But Sceva, or Skeva, is actually a nickname, and it means lefty. And there is no known Jewish high priest by the name of Skeva. And he wouldn't have gone by Skeva anyway. 
This is the kind of detail that would have been invented for the sake of professional publicity. You know, traveling medicine men are never above making up their credentials. It's just like uh, photoshopping your, your own, uh, I don't know, photoshopping your own Harvard graduate degree. So you can put it on your wall and impress people with phony credentials. Here we got phony credentials. Um, couple of exorcists claimed to be from a family of seven brothers. That's a magical number. And they're sons of a great high priest. More magical mana. And he's a left-hander. That's even more mystic power. And they can fix what ails you for a modest fee. Thank you, Reverend Ike, for those who remember Reverend Ike. The exorcistic formula itself is historically correct for Jewish exorcists. He says, I adjure you, and the Greek word is horkizo, horkizo. It never appears in the New Testament in the mouth of Jesus or the disciples, but it is typical in non-Christian sources, and it's typical in Jewish formula and in, later in pagan formula. And the medicine men continue, by the Jesus Paul preaches. You see, they don't know Jesus. They've only heard of him, and so they have to borrow secondhand. They don't even know Paul. They've just overheard him and been impressed. And the whole thing backfires as the demon then taunts them in a sing-song three-part rebuttal. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then comes the punchline. Then comes the punchline. The demon masters the exorcists and overpowers them so they flee. Mastering, overpower, and flee. Those are technical terms used by Jewish sources to describe the mastering, overpowering, and fleeing of demons. You see, but the point is, this time it's turned around. The demon exorcises the exorcists. At this, of course, the Greek speaker would laugh uproariously. The joke gets kind of lost on us if we don't know the Jewish stories and traditions and kind of get the punchline here. You see that a couple of would-be exorcists get a thrashing at the hands of a violent lunatic, well, that's, not, that's historically not improbable. But the story came to be told, it's just the way that you tell a story, they came to be told as kind of a burlesque satire of a Jewish exorcism. And I think we could say it became, evidently became something of an inside joke among Christians, especially in the Ephesus area. That was, that was really a funny story in Greek. 
one of my favorites. But the point of the story is that the name did not work, not automatically, at least. The demons know who Jesus is. They are even familiar by name with his messengers and his apostles, implying that all of these are indeed powerful and influential persons in the spirit realm. But the power to dislodge the spirits is not implicit in the name itself. It's not just the name. It's not a magic formula or an incantation that can drive out spirits at will, regardless of who wields it. And I'll tell you why. In the name of Jesus is what we call an authorization formula. Authorization formula. It comes out of the realm of law and politics. It's like the judge who declares, by the authority vested in me by the state of yada yada, or like the policeman who yells, stop in the name of the law. It means he has been authorized to carry out the letter and the intent of legislation to detain criminals and to stop crime, ideally. He's been trained, he's taken a vow to uphold the Constitution and to enforce the law of the land, and has been, in the case of a policeman, pinned with a badge as an indication of his authorization. In the same way, Jesus authorizes his disciples to represent the kingdom of God on earth. His disciples have been empowered to detain and arrest the spiritual hosts of wickedness. They're authorized. The name is not magical. <coughs> You're simply stating who you represent. Who you represent and by whose authority you're coming against the powers. This is not magic. It's not even science. This is law enforcement. You see the difference? It's law enforcement. Four, when the so-called sons of Sceva <clears throat> get roundly trounced by a violent demoniac, there is an interesting public reaction. Let's look again at Acts 19, but now the verses 17 to 19. When this became known <clears throat> to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. And many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. And when the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. 
Now, Ephesus was famous for its magic arts. Still is to some extent. It was so famous for it, those, you know, those nonsense syllables that make up most of the foreign-sounding incantations, that kabar-bar-bat-the-oath stuff that I keep stumbling over. Well, they were called, they're nonsense syllables that are supposed to sound like foreign languages, and they were called Ephesian letters. That's really what they were called. Ephesus was so famous for it. Professionals would swap spells and collect them into their own quite valuable and costly manuals. But what I want you to note is that it is those who became believers, that's what it says, those who became believers, those are the ones who are coming and confessing their dark arts, those are the ones coming and burning their homemade cookbooks of spells. That is, these are Christians who up to this point have believed in Jesus and in magic. We shouldn't be surprised. As I said, we, all of us are still susceptible to magical thinking. We're not immune from it. We can very easily, easily get magic confused with real faith. I mean, let me just kind of give you a scenario. And I hate to admit it, but just about everything in, in this scenario, I have at some point in my life actually done. And if you discover that I'm touching on something you've done too, I give you permission to laugh or turn red, as you, as you prefer, as you choose. Okay, you picture in your, you, you're confronted with a troublesome situation. It's you, or it's your children, or a friend, or something. Most, the, the worst is when it's us. You want to pray for an answer. You want to pray for deliverance or healing or whatever. And you may pray, and you'll picture in your mind's eye what resolution you'd like to see so that, you know, you can ask God to do, Lord, could you do this? Could you heal me or heal so-and-so? Could you heal this marriage? Could you do this? Could you do that? We, we have an idea of what we'd like to see happen. Okay, fine. Nothing wrong with that. And then, at some point, you start combing through the Bible, looking for precious promises to pick out that you can claim. You might even collect them in a prayer journal, not unlike the Ephesians collecting spells. And then you quote them to God, or at God, maybe we should say quote them at God, as if they were binding liens in a legal contract. God, you said in your word, and I pick out the promises, you have to do it. 
what I'm asking and how I ask for it because I know all the right scriptures. You pray, maybe loudly. Now, I don't mind loud praying. When you start pouring out your heart to God, it's, it may be a natural thing, especially in your praising and worshiping God. You know, it says, shout to the Lord. If it comes out loud, that's fine. But when we start petitioning and we start shouting, we start getting loud, maybe even louder, what are we trying to do? We're trying to coerce God to do what we want. We're trying to, we're, as if our decibels are a fair and accurate measure of our faith. I'm embarrassed to say that. I've done that. We might make promises we can't or will never keep. Trying to make bargains and deals with God. Might even wonder, oh, hmm, I wonder if I can make him do what I'm asking if I, oh, if I fast. Now, how much do I have? Is it enough just not to eat chocolate or do I have to really go hungry? Mmm. These are things we do. And then what happens if after all this, things don't pan out like we wanted, like we wished? What do you say? I guess I didn't pray hard enough. Have you ever said that? Don't, I don't want to see the hands. That's a rhetorical question. I guess I didn't pray hard enough. I guess I didn't sing a powerful enough song. I guess I didn't know the right procedure. I didn't have the right knowledge. Maybe I didn't will it enough. Maybe I didn't say the name loud enough. You must have made a mistake in the formula because the spell didn't work. If you'd only found the right verses, the right plea, the right volume, the right feelings of faith, the right emotional intensity, God would have to do what you asked, like magic. All of that is simply magical thinking to which we're all prone. It's a human thing. As you know, one of the biggest problems facing the church is, and you know this, I've said it, people doing peoplish things. Welcome to the world of peoplish things. In magical thinking, everything depends upon me and my wants, my own resolve, my strength of will, my spiritual or emotional intensity. It's actually utterly egotistical and narcissistic. It's all about me. And faith becomes a feeling of determination. Prayer becomes a series of tried and true techniques 
to manipulate a God who ultimately must be very small and gullible, uncaring, and yet wishy-washy. Not the mighty sovereign master of the universe and the compassionate father who counts the very hairs on your head. Not the God and Father of Jesus Christ. You see why Scripture ultimately condemns all forms of magic so resoundingly. Faith is a relationship. That's why authority and power of Jesus' name comes through authorization. It's from law enforcement because it means you stand in relationship to the ultimate authority and act on behalf of the ultimate authority. I can never exercise authority by somebody else's Jesus. Jesus opened the door so I can bring my worries and my concerns to my loving Father in heaven. And I can rest in His arms like a child. I do not demand my own way, no matter how passionately I am troubled because he will know the best thing to do. He'll know how to handle this. I ask, and he wants me to ask, but I trust his wisdom and his care. I don't have to feel my faith. The fact that I come and that I come to him is all the faith he requires. I don't have to raise my voice to persuade him. The whisper of a broken heart reaches his ears best. It's not my place to pick the promises I want but he will guide he will guide me to his word for me in this situation he will pick the promises he will speak his word i presume nothing i take nothing for granted i am nothing and he is everything that is faith. Magic looks at the surface of things, cares only about results. Faith looks at the substance below the surface and cares only about a relationship. So, what are you looking for? Let's pray. 
Lord, as we come, we confess in our humanness, Lord, we keep looking at the surface of things. We keep wanting to somehow move you or coerce you or manipulate you. No matter how much we say we trust you, Lord, we're, we trust you about as much as a two-year-old trusts his parents, especially when they're not giving him what he wants. We never really grow very far beyond the terrible twos. Forgive us, Lord, have mercy on us, and teach us the secret of real faith, a real relationship to come as a child to our Father and know you will do all things well. Because ultimately, Lord, you have the power, you have all the authority, you have the wisdom, and you will get all the glory. In Jesus' name we praise And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.